I invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua, the 10th chapter. As we continue in our study through the book of Joshua, this, this study of fueled by faith, being propelled into rest because of the faith that we have in God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And just to set the context, on the heels of chapter 9, Joshua and Israel were deceived by the Gibeonites. They enter into a covenant, a, a treaty with them. And now they, they are their servants, and Israel has promised to keep them, to not destroy them. And even on the even before that, Joshua has a second chance to defeat AI. They crush him by taking care of sin, removing sin out of the camp, and now they are set up to enter into the promised land in such a way that, that they will have a significant stronghold and their enemies will not have an opportunity to come against them because of their position. Joshua 10 focuses on Israel's success in, in, in southern Canaan, in this southern conquest, and after defeating Jericho and Ai, and because of their treaty with Gibeon, now it is inevitable that all of the nations will be conquered, and we find ourselves here. Israel is once again a mighty military force because of their obedience to God. Here, in Joshua 10, we find ourselves. Let us all stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of God. Hear the voice of Christ. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai, and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and his king as he had done to Jericho and his king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai. And all his men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me, and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua, and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to, come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him. And all the mighty men of valor, and the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. 
So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day, and when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. You may be seated. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of this word. I'd like to put a tag upon this text before us this morning. Here he comes to save the day. Here he comes to save the day. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we, Father, we are not worthy to stand in your presence right now. Father, we don't deserve your goodness. We don't deserve your, your glory. We don't deserve your kindness. But yet, because of the matchless name of Jesus, Lord, we come right now before your throne of grace, boldly covered in the blood of Jesus, asking that you will have your way upon this morning. Father, may your spirit come and open blind eyes and open deaf ears and prepare hearts to receive your word, dear God. Because of the victory that we have in Christ Jesus right now, oh God, show us just what it means to be yours. Show us just what it means to be people of a promise, a promise that you will be victorious. Father, show us what it means to be a people of rest because we ain't worried about this life because we have surrendered everything to you right now. Father, show us what it means to be free because we depend upon your promises and not our strength. Show us, dear God, what it means to truly worship you, not because of what you have done, but just because of who you are. Father, show forth your majesty before us this morning. Jesus, matchless and mighty name, we do pray. Amen. You know, sometime during the Civil War, a, a, a question began to be posed about whose side was God on? Was God for the North or was God for the South? Being asked if God was for the North, President Abraham Lincoln is quoted to have said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. For God is always right. Such truth, such profound meaning, even for us 
this morning. And the question is not whether God has joined you in your fight. The, the question is whether or not you've joined God in his fight. But what normally happens? What normally happens is that we like to start the fights and then we want God to finish them. We get messy and, and we start picking and prodding and we make our own choices and then we want God to come around and fix it and fight on our behalf. We, we enter into relationships with that guy, with that girl. We know they're bad news. We know they don't love Jesus, but we're asking, we're praying every night, well, Lord, I'm with them now. Would you please save them? Well, Lord, I, I knew she was crazy when I met her, but, but, but can't you just regulate her mind? Lord, please, fight for me. You know I need somebody. Maybe on a on the job, you've, you've taken that new position without spending time in prayer, and all of a sudden you, you figured out that there's a reason why they add some extra digits to the dollars. It's because it's one of those jobs that don't nobody really want, and you can't stand the people that's there. But, but you decided to take it because you wanted the money. Now you want God to fix it. Well, Lord, give me patience on the job. Please change my coworkers. Lord, my boss needs Jesus. Oh, help me speak a word for you. We start the fight, and we want God to finish it. You may be a high school student, and you've always wanted to go to this particular school, but, but you know you can't really afford to go to that school, but you're going to go anyway because you've always wanted to go, even, even though God is trying to lead you somewhere where you're going to get a full ride, but you're going to put the whole family in debt. But, but what does God want you to do? You're picking fights. You want God to finish them. We want God to save the day, but we have a hard time relying upon him in the first place. See, but this is not the case for Israel. Israel hasn't chosen uh, uh, for God to come on their side, but they're fighting on God's side. See, the fight that they've been waging is one that's been ordained by God. The fight that Israel's been waging is a fight uh, that fulfills a promise that he made to Abraham uh, many years ago that he would give uh, Abraham a people and a land. He is, he is fighting to fulfill this promise. Israel fights because they are waging a war against a people who have been rebellious against an immensely patient God. This is why they fight. See, the best part of being on God's side is that God always wins. God always wins. God always wins because he promised that he would. And we can trust his promises because God's promises are his word and his word are his promises. They're one and the same. When God makes a statement in the scriptures, it, it is true. You can take it to the bank. You can't depend upon it. When God makes a promise, it's already happened. He brings it to fruition. Thus, thus, God's promises become the fuel of faith propelling his people towards victory. This is what we see in the text. 
See, though, though the enemies of God may rise up to oppose God's people, God shows up to save the day. God fights for his people. Beloved, you can fully depend upon the promises of God because God fights for his people. See, in the text before us this morning, we'll, we will see just how dependable this God is and just how, how perfect his promises are. We'll see this in four movements throughout the text. We'll see promises problem. We'll see promises plea. Promises prayer, but promises product. We'll see the problem, the plea, the prayer, and the product. God, you know, God fights for you. God wants to fight for you. Whatever issues you are going through right now, God wants to fight for you. Will you let him? But will you let him? In the text, beginning with verse 1, we see the problem. In verses 1 through 5, the kings in the land began to bring, bring forth a coalition because they're upset that Gibeon has made a peace treaty with Israel. What we see in these in these five verses are, are these Amorite kings, King Adonai Zedek, he, he's mad, but there's two reasons. He's looking out at the situation, and he says, okay, well, if we don't do something fast, we're going to be conquered, we're going to be destroyed. Because Gibeon, who was supposed to be on our side, has turned tail, and they've joined Israel. But not only that, we see that Gibeon has become a powerful ally for Israel. So everything is stacked against us, so I need to go get me some help. You know how you do when you outman and overpowered? You run home and get your cousins, your sister, your brother, you, go, you run home and get everybody to come out, come, come help you fight. Now you, now you could have been the one that was wrong, but you will go home and get somebody else to fight on your behalf. King Adonai, he wants to get someone to fight on his behalf. And he shows up with these kings. But I want you to notice in the text a few, a few things as we walk through this. Notice what it says about Gibeon. Because Gibeon had made peace with Israel, verse 1. But then also, two, he feared greatly. Why? Because Gibeon was a great city. Gibeon wasn't, it wasn't just one city. Remember, it was it was four cities that kind of came together that Gibeon was over. So, so in, back in chapter 9, remember they were marching up and they found out, y'all not really from a far place. This y'all house right there. And that deception was uncovered. So Gibeon had a whole lot of land. It was well fortified. But then mostly all of his men were warriors. They were known to be strong. They were known to, to be able to defend their territory. So now, Gibeon has made peace with Israel and become one of them. What we want to flush out in the text right here is that peace agreement. Even though Gibeon was big, even though Gibeon was strong, Gibeon recognized that they could not take on the Lord's army. 
No matter how vicious their warriors were, when, when God's people got on the battlefield, it, they could not come up against that strength because God fights for his people. It, it wasn't just Israel's army doing the, the, the battling. It was God himself battling on their behalf. So they could not do anything with the forces. What does this mean? As the Amorites saw this, they realized you're on the winning team. We're coming after you. Yahweh's promise to be with you. God's promise to be with you will make you a target for all of his enemies. When you surrender your life to Christ and say, I am leaving this life, and I am, I, I am leaving that camp and I am coming over to God's side, you have been automatically marked as a target for Satan. You ever wonder why things get so hard when you want to do right? When you first come to Christ and you're excited and, and you know that Jesus has changed you, that the next day you go to work, why all of a sudden you got problems on the job? Why all of a sudden you got problems in your marriage? Why all of a sudden it seems like things are jumping on your back? It's because now you have become a target for Satan. You have aligned yourself with King Jesus, and, and everybody hates a winner. Everybody hates a winner. Think about it. When the Patriots were, were winning all of their Super Bowls, everybody started hating. Oh, I can't stand Tom Brady. Can't stand the Patriots. When the Chicago Bulls were winning all their championships, why don't they just let somebody else win? Connecticut Huskies. Now, now, now everyone is like hating on Golden State Warriors. There's something about being on the winning side that when people know that they don't have what they have, get upset. And it brings the worst out of a person. Beloved, understand this. When God is really working in your life and you are showing off Jesus, when people start hating on you, they're not hating on you. They're hating on the Jesus in you. They're not hating on you and what you do. They're hating on how God shines through your life. They always got something good to say. Why are they always happy in the morning? It's 8 o'clock. Why you always got to be a happy person in the morning? Why you always got to be honest? why you can't just turn the report in like I said to? See, when, when Jesus is shining through you, the world looks upon that and, and hates it. And as these kings are looking at Gibeon, they're seeing someone they hate because they have now aligned themselves with the winner, God's army. And Beloved, believe me, though, when we are thinking about God's promises and that he will fight for us, we often only think about people. But you know what? Enemies aren't just people. Enemies can be places or things. Enemies can be both spiritual, physical, and emotional. See, enemies can be that person on the job. See, but then enemies can be that, those demonic attacks that they throw at you on the job. What about sicknesses and disease coming up in your body? Those are enemies. 
anything that, that, that wants to bring us down, that wants to tear us apart, these are enemies, and, and God wants to fight for his people. God uses these situations uh, for various reasons in our lives, but believe me, that enemies aren't just the people that you see. Sometimes your, your, your greatest enemy is looking back at you in the mirror. The most self-destructive, dangerous person can be the person that you're looking at when you're brushing your teeth. We can be our own worst enemy sometimes, but God is saying, I will fight for you. You you can fully depend upon God's promises. Why? How? By making peace with Jesus. How? That's what that means. How, How can I depend upon what you have said? Well, you need to understand that I can depend upon Jesus when I have ran to him. By making peace. This this peace accord that Gibeon has made with Israel, as we will see, comes not only with servitude, but it comes with protection. When we make peace with God through Jesus Christ, through repentance of sin, I call it, I I started calling it the the conversion coin. How How do we make peace with God? It's through this conversion coin. Think about this imaginary coin, this heads and tail coin. And on heads is repentance. Repentance, I'm saying, Father God, I'm, I'm sorry for being disobedient. I'm sorry for living life my way, doing what I want, how I want, when I want. I'm, I'm sorry for being the God of my own life. I'm sorry for disrespecting you. I'm, I'm sorry for rebelling against you. I'm, I'm sorry from, uh, for being the God of my own life. That's repentance. And I want to turn from that. But, you know, on the tail side of that coin called conversion is faith. And it's faith that I know I can't save myself. I know I'm hopeless. I know I, I, am, I am living apart from, from, from God, and the only way that I can be reconciled with the Father is by faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that he is who he says he is. He did what he said he did, and he's ruling and reigning right now in glory, right now. I can't save myself, and I must look to Christ. That's how we're made right with God, through repentance and faith, and through repentance and faith, uh, we now have Jerusalem, we have Shalom. Peace. Peace with God. There's no more enmity. There's no more wrath. There's no more anger. Why? What happened to it? Because Jesus bore God's wrath on Calvary's cross, so I don't have to bear it anymore. Peace. Complete peace. Not only does promise have a problem, but promise has a plea. Because in verses 6 through 11, we see that when the Amorites come up against Gibeon, what do they do? Do they think they're big? Do they think they're bold? Do they they trust in their walled fortress? No. They run to Joshua. They run to Joshua and say, Joshua, we need your help. Help us. Save us. The Amorites are coming up against us. They, They want to destroy us. Well, what's going on in this text? Simply put, the Gibeonites, they're, they're, they're invoking their covenant privilege. When you are reconciled with God, that, that reconciliation comes with certain benefits and privileges. 
You don't just serve God through worship. You don't serve, just serve him with your life. But when you are reconciled with the father, the protection that he has for his children, the, uh, the sustenance that he gives his children is part of that as well. So Gibeon, they're coming, and they want this covenant privilege. Joshua, we not only will serve you, but you have agreed to protect us. That's what happened. You will protect us. And Joshua has a decision to make. In chapter 9, the Gibeonites deceived him. Joshua could be like, oh, this is our way out. This is our way out. We can get off the hook with the Gibeonites if we just let the Amorites come and crush them. We say, we ain't did it. We honored our vow. But what does Joshua do? He does the honorable thing. He does, he does the righteous thing. And he immediately he gets up to honor his covenant. When it comes to our covenant with God, how quickly are we wanting to be obedient to God's will? Do we have an immediate obedience, or is it like, well, Lord, I, can't, I don't feel like it today, or, man, Lord, you're, you're asking a whole lot of me. I, I really don't want to go there. What, what, what is God calling you to today? Joshua gets up immediately to honor this covenant. And he takes his, his men, he takes his army, and he begins a 20-mile march in the dark, up a hill, a journey that would have normally taken three days for them to travel. He does it one night. I mean, that, I mean that, that, that'll preach itself. Like, Knowing what you have to go through for morning. Some of you are running right now. It's dark, but God just wants you to keep running. It, you can't see from your left or from your right, but he just says, keep running. You're not running downhill, but you're running uphill. But he says, keep running. And he says, keep running to the morning, because at daybreak, you will conquer your enemies. At, at daybreak, you will have victory. At, at daybreak, I will cast those who are oppressing you to the side. They're running at night, and once they get there, God shows up. But in verse 8, this is key, he reminds Joshua of his promise. Verse 8, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. For I have given them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. This is the same promise that he makes in Joshua 1 and 5. See, I, what God does for us, God doesn't give us new truth. He just reminds us of what he's already said. God doesn't have to keep showing up and giving you something new. For many of us, it, all he does is remind you of what he's already said in the past. I, I said it back then, I said it here, and I'm going to say it in the future. If you are just obedient to what I've called you to, you will have victory. So this reminder, this reminder of the promise that he gave to, to Joshua and to Israel prompts, propels Joshua into action. But what do we learn from this portion of text? We learn right here that God's promise to be with you will make you dependent. Dependent. Well, what does that mean? 
It reminds me when I, growing up, playing with my uncle, I had, my uncle, I, I, I used to have so much fun with my uncle, but it was crazy because my uncle, would all, he would always beat me up. He would always, like, flip me on the ear, like, punch me in my knee, and then he used to always like to play mercy with me. And, and he'd be like, come on, let's play mercy. And the fool that I was, I kept on playing mercy with him. And he would say, come on, play mercy. And, and we would begin to play. He would just hold it. He would just flex my arms. Like, mercy, mercy, let me go. Let me go. Sometimes in our lives, in order for us to recognize and depend upon the promises of God, he will flex us so that we have to say mercy. God will flex you so that you will actually have to live out your faith and not just talk about your faith. God will put you in a situation where you can't get out of it yourself. Your, 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 your tongue can't get you out of this one. Your mama can't get you out of this one. Your, your daddy, your grandma, your, your, your cousin, your, can't nobody get you out of this one. And he puts you there so you will say, mercy. Mercy. I can't keep living for myself. I can't keep doing this on my own. Mercy. I give up. God has flex on the Gibeonites. Now, but because they have a peace treaty, they have a peace treaty, so they're not at odds anymore. So when they say mercy, God says, well, I'm coming. Mercy, well, I'm ready to show up. Mercy, now I'm going to flex my power. So as he's flexing them, they surrender. Joshua, help us. There's some of us in here, we think we can actually do life ourselves. We think we got it figured out. We think we know the routine. And God is flexing on you. And you, want, and you, and you, and you wonder what is going on. He's bringing all kinds of drama, all kinds of issues. And he's flexing you, but he's not flexing on you because he hates you. He's flexing on you so you will let go and let him be God in that situation, whatever it is. He wants you to be dependent upon him. You can fully depend upon God's promises. How? By running to him. The Gibeonites didn't try to stay and fight. They didn't try to look at their own strength, but they ran to God's people and said, help. Help me. Save me. Some of you, that should, that should be your cry today. Help me. It, it doesn't have to be no sophisticated prayer. Help me. Now, save me, Lord. And we're missing blessings because we're trying to do life ourselves. In Matthew, the 23rd chapter, Jesus is talking to, he's like, he's like speaking over Jerusalem. Matthew, the 23rd chapter, verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones 
those who are sent to it. Oh, watch what Jesus says. He says, how often would I have gathered you, your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, if you would have just came to me, if you would have just stopped rejecting me, if you would have just ran to me and with open arms, I would have covered you. I would have kept you. But because they hadn't, they would be punished and Israel would be destroyed. Jesus is saying that to you today. Stop running from me. Just come to me. Tell me what's going on. And I will work on your behalf. Why? Because he promised he would. He promised that he would not leave Israel. He promised that he would be with them. So God's promises have a problem. His promises have a plea. But his promises have a prayer. Verses 12 through 14. Verse 12 says, At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. This is not written in the book of Jasher. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. What is going on in this text? Two prior miracles that God had worked on Israel's behalf was the stopping up of the Jordan River. They crossed the Jordan River. This is all under Joshua's command. But then also he brought down Jericho's walls. So what is actually going on here? Now there's actually quite a few views of what this text is specifically talking about. One of the traditional views is that the, the earth stopped its rotation. So in order, as we know, in order for the sun to actually stand still, the sun doesn't move. It's, it's the earth that's rotating. So in order for the sun to stand still and the moon to stay where it is, the, the earth will have to either slow down this rotation, or it would have to stop. And the position of Gibeon and Ajalon is, is the, the east and the west. So the sun would have been coming up and the moon would have been going down. So something was happening that would have prolonged the day. That's one view. Another view is that the sunlight just lingered somehow. So when you think about King Hezekiah, when the King Hezekiah was sick and he was he was going before the Lord for healing. He said, well, how will I know that you will heal me? And God says, well, I, I just take the shadow back. I just go backwards with the shadow, walk it back, and you will see that I'm at work here. So this lingering. A third view is that the sunlight was actually blocked, and this is called the darkness view, where the hail storms would have been rolling in, and instead of it, it being bright to keep their at, uh, at military advantage, it would have been dark. So, so God kept it dark at that time. There's other views. However, however, what we see here 
is the extent to which God will go to to fight for his people. Whether God did it or not. Now we know that if God can speak and the universe come into existence, he can do it. He holds all power in his hand. He, he can do it. So, so whether he stopped the earth on his axis or not, well, what he's saying is that God will go to extreme lengths to protect and fight for his people. Well, well, what does that mean? That God would do everything to take care of his child. Like, I would do a lot to take care of my kids, but God does even more to take care of his children. What lengths would you go for your child? The greatest length he demonstrated on Calvary's cross. That he would be separated from this eternal son in order that we may have forgiveness of sin. He goes to great lengths for his children. But, but in the text, that's not even the thing that's, more, that's most amazing. In verse 14, see it. He says, there has been no day like it before or since. Why? Because the sun stood still? No. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man. What is he talking about here? Doesn't God hear my prayers? But the language here in the text is not like when Moses went on behalf of Israel as a mediator. That's, that's not what the text is saying. It's actually a, a stronger verb that, that, that says that God actually obeyed a man. This is phenomenal. Why? Because Joshua's request was rooted completely in the promises of God, he was able to pray in a way that no one had ever prayed before. Because God had made a covenant promise that they could not stand before him, Joshua was able to basically stop everything because with his word. He said, God, stop them. Extend this day. Why? So that your enemies may be vanquished. Not for my glory. Not for my name. Not for my sake, but that your name may be known throughout this land. See, when we pray, we want our name. We want our stuff. We want, uh, uh, we want all that we have to be blessed. But Joshua is playing that, Lord, that your enemies may be crushed. That those who come up against you may be wiped out, may be defeated. Why? So that your glory would shine forth on this day. We want you to show up, oh God, and to show out. Erwin Lutzer, in his commentary, he puts it like this. Joshua could make such a great request because he knew the value of a promise is dependent on the power and character of the one who gives it. Joshua was able to do it because he knew God. And God had been fighting for him. So what does this mean? You can fully depend on God's promises by proactively praying. Proactively praying. What does that even mean? Praying in a way that's based upon God's promises that have already been revealed and expecting him to show up to fulfill his promise. So 
when the text of scripture says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. That tells me that if I need to understand something, if I need insight, if I need instruction, that I can fully pray that God would give me wisdom and expect that it would happen. I'm proactively praying a prayer that God has me praying right now. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, before the mighty hand of God. And at the right time, he will exalt you, casting your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. I'm just stuck on the first half. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. What is that saying? He's saying that, that when I humbly approach God, I don't get to tell him what to do. When I humbly approach him, that means that I allow him to be in control of every aspect of my life. When I humbly approach him, I'm saying, Lord, you just tell me what to do. And, but, but when I humbly approach him, he says at the right time, he did not my time, at the right time, he will exalt you. But what does that mean for you? That when you humble yourself before God, that he will exalt you, but just not on your time. And your purpose. For your reason. I can pray that with full expectation knowing that he will answer. In his time. I can trust in him. We see the, the problem, the plea, the prayer, but lastly, we see the, the product. Because in verse 15, Israel has conquered, and they're headed back home. They're victorious. They're victorious. What we see here actually goes back to chapter 9. Because in God's providence, he uses Joshua's foolish allegiance as a means to conquer five kings at once for conquest, for victory. What, what is he saying here? He, God is saying that even those foolish mistakes that you've already made, that I'm so sweet and I'm so good and I'm so powerful that I'm still able to work everything out for your good and my glory. That though you may have blown it in the past, I can take your mess up and turn it into something that's victorious. In one fell swoop, God takes over the entire southern kingdom of Israel based upon Joshua's foolish covenant. If God can do that with Joshua, what can he do with you? You think that decision takes you out the game? You think that mistake ruins your life for good? You talking about making lemonade out of lemons, God will do so much more with your life. He will take every bad decision, every screw up, every mess up, and in his providence, he got a bowl of providence, and he, he's working his providence, 
and he's, he's, he's mixing in your ingredients, and he says, I'm going to take this and still work this out in such a way that I will be glorified and they will be rewarded. Who else can do something like this? What a savior to take my mess and turn into a breakthrough. To take my shackles and my yoke and to bring me deliverance. To take my screw-ups and not only deliver me, but deliver my family, my friends, and my loved ones. God is able to work like that. Yahweh's promise to you will produce victory. His promises produce victory. A day that could have been a slaughter turned into a day of celebration. A day that could have been a vice became a victory. What, when I think about this situation, all of a sudden, it makes Psalm 124 make sense. Turn with me to Psalm 124. It makes sense. This is, this is called biblical exegesis, where you, you let the Bible speak for itself and interpret itself. I think about this situation, and then I turn over to Psalm 124, and this is a song of ascent. So they would have been celebrating, going to the temple, and they would have, they would have said, if it had not been, the Lord who was on our side. Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when? When the people rose up against us. They would have been swallowed, they would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Beloved, had it not been for the Lord who was on my side, had it not been for the Lord who's on your side, there's all sorts of widows and cutters and sitters. Had it not been God's grace and his mercy, his, his love, his kindness, and his favor following you, you would have been snared. But, but, but he said the snare is broken. No longer does sin have rule or reign in my life because God is on my side. We understand this when we look to the New Testament and see Jesus. Had he not come born of a virgin? Had he not been obedient 
in every way, in thought and in deed. Had he not declared who he was via miracles and signs and wonders, had he not rightly interpreted the law, had he not given up his life as a sinless sacrifice on my behalf, had he not went to Calvary's cross, had he not been stretched wide, had he not been hung high, had he not been pierced in the sack, had he not died, had he not been placed in the tomb, and had he not rose again the third day with all power in his hand, then I would be in the snare. But he did. He did get up, and he does have all power in his hand. Now sin's stronghold of my life has been broken. For those who have been set free are free indeed in Christ Jesus. What promise do you hold on to do to, to propel you to victory? Some of you are going through some things right now and you don't know where to turn. And God said, just, just pick up my word. I give you something to hold on to. You know, when you're going through something, God wants us to just memorize his word. Why? Because sometimes when you're hurting, you ain't got no thoughts of your own. You can just recite scripture. Ah, I'm wandering. I, I don't know why I'm going through life. Ah, but the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Uh, when, when he's able to, to regulate your mind because you've been meditating on his goodness already, it has an effect on your life. What promises are you holding on to today? But beloved, don't look past the small victories that Jesus has already given you because of his grace. Because it's easy to look at who you ain't and what you aren't doing. But if God has given you any amount of grace in your life, if you have just a little bit more joy, if you get a little more peace, if you get a little bit more patience, and kindness, and, and gentleness, and, and self if, if If anything in your life looks a little bit different, rejoice. Rejoice. That is a victory. Because apart from the Holy Spirit working in your life, you would not be going this way, you would be going that way. Beloved, rejoice at the small evidences of God working in your life. Don't take for granted just how far he will go to fight for you. When I thought about this text, and it said there was not another day ever for this to happen, I was like, well, is that true? But then I thought about, well, you know, at the time of the writing, I'm sure that would have been true. But by the time of the New Testament, I began thinking about Jesus making a similar request. This request, it wasn't, please, Father. It was, this, this is what I need you to do. And he says to the Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's, that's not a request. He, he, 
because of my broken body, because of my shed blood, and the promise that comes in my body, and the promise that comes from my blood, I can make a request that you forgive these people for they know not what they do. What is Jesus saying? Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can have forgiveness of sin today by faith through repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. Tell this to everyone. Tell this to co-workers. Tell this to family. Tell this to your friends. Tell them just how far God is willing to fight for you and the victory that you have in Jesus. Tell them about that old song that testifies. I heard an old, old story how our Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood atoning, then I repented of my sins and won the victory. And it seemed to correspond, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. And he loved me ere I knew him. And all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Talk about Jesus on the job. Talk about the victory having Jesus at home. But make sure you praise God and you declare that I have victory because I have trusted Christ. Father, thank you for this promise that you have given that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, we thank you for promises that, that have no prerequisites. We thank you for promises that aren't predicated on our behavior, but you just said, come as you are, and i handle the rest. Father, thank you for the audacious forgiveness we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the boldness that we, we, we can approach your throne of grace with because of Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would redeem someone from the pit this day, that you would transform, that you would deliver, and that you would set someone free today. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.